people could picture this, you're in a, an environment in an underground coal mine, the only light you got is the cap lamp on your head. You've got a roadway that's 5.2 metres wide by probably 3 metres high. It's enclosed, it's hot. And in this roadway is a seal, like a, like a wall. And that wall is stopping access between you and going into an area that's full of hot, toxic gases, gases that won't support life because of the level of oxygen. And you've got a, a doorway into this area. And this doorway simply has a piece of tape across it and a, and a bolt latching action to open the door. So that's all you got. So you do a risk assessment, you say, what's the risk of a person accessing or entering into this area of the mine through that door? And the best you can come up with is a piece of no road tape. And then you say, level of risk is acceptable. To me, that's probably the worst administrative control I've seen, because the end result was a worker lost his life. That was Stephen Smythe from the CFMEU, talking about some of the controls being used to mitigate risk in the mining industry. And he's specifically talking about administrative controls. And we're going to talk a lot about these sort of controls in this episode. And we're also going to look at how they fit into a broader issue, the issue of paperwork. And we'll also talk about serious accidents, because it turns out that in the majority of cases following a serious accident, the only thing being used to stop it happening again is a piece of paper. A man has died after an industrial accident at a coal mine in the state's far north. Now we want to go to that incident in Queensland. The 44-year-old was working 700 metres underground when there was a collapse. This is Rethinking Safety, a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. My name is Sean Brady, and I wrote the Brady Review into fatal accidents in the Queensland mining industry. In this podcast, we'll unpack the findings of the review with the goal to help the Queensland mining industry rethink its approach to safety. You'll hear from leaders in the industry, the regulator, the union, and leading academics and experts in the field of safety. As we ask the question, what is the role of paperwork and administrative controls in the Queensland mining industry? This is episode three, the paperwork problem. In this episode, we're going to cover a lot of different topics, but the thing that ties them together is paperwork, procedures and administrative controls. Now, we briefly touched on these topics in our last episode. You heard Bobby Foote and Russell Wilson talking about what Borrell and BHB Mitsubishi Alliance were doing to reduce the paperwork burden on their supervisors. We're going to continue this topic today. We'll ask what's driving this paperwork and is it actually effective in terms of keeping people safe. And to start this discussion, we're going to look at how the industry responds when a serious accident occurs. What is a serious accident? Well, in the Queensland mining industry, it has a quite specific definition. A serious accident uh, is an accident that a mine that either causes the death of a person or causes that person to be admitted to hospital for treatment as an inpatient. Today we're going to be joined by Herman Fashing again. He's the Chief Inspector of Mineral Mines and Quarries, and he helped us understand the causal diagrams in Episode 2. And today he'll help us understand some of these concepts. It's a significant injury that this person has sustained, uh, and it's going to have you know, life-altering impacts on them. 
So in the review, we looked at a total of 589 serious accidents that were reported to the regulator from 2011 onwards. We'll look at the causes of these accidents a little later, but for now, I want to talk about how the industry is responding to these serious accidents. And what we're interested in here is this. When a mine reports a serious accident to the regulator, what type of controls do they put in place to prevent it happening again? So in case you're not familiar with the different types of controls available, here's Herman again talking about the hierarchy of controls. Just running down that list, there's the elimination of the hazard, there's substitution with a lesser hazard, uh, separation of the person from the hazard or, or isolation of the person from the hazard, uh, then engineering controls, administrative controls, and finally PPE. Uh, that's personal protective equipment. So let's step through this hierarchy. Elimination really is getting rid of the hazard. So imagine you have a warehouse with forklift trucks and pedestrians in a shared space. You can eliminate the hazard of a vehicle hitting a pedestrian by either removing the vehicle or removing the pedestrian. The next one is substitution. So you take a hazard and you substitute it with something which is less hazardous. A good example is substituting chemical products used by workers with far less toxic versions. The next one down from there is uh, separation or isolation. So now you're dealing with a situation where the hazard exists, but you separate or isolate the person from the hazard. A good example of this is placing rotating machinery in a locked room and allowing operators to remotely monitor it. Uh, now, the engineering controls are really those hard controls that are put in place to either contain the hazard or, pr or prevent a person from actually being able to interact with the hazard. An example of an engineering control could be installing a physical safety guard between the moving parts of a conveyor. So these type of controls are often referred to as hard controls. They physically stop something from occurring by eliminating, substituting, isolating, or by coming up with an engineering solution for the hazard. Coming down then in the, in the order of the hierarchy, you now get to administrative controls, and administrative controls are, are those things that you now put in place you're not having an effect on the, on the hazard itself. Now it's really administrative and it's about these are now the training, the procedures, the supervision. So the control becomes less effective by its very nature because you're now relying on a person or persons to do something the same way every single time and not make a mistake or error. So administrative controls include training, planning, signage, and communication. And you heard from Stephen Smite at the beginning of this episode describe an administrative control. And that was in the form of barrier tape on a door to a part of a coal mine with a dangerous atmosphere. And then down to personal protective equipment. It's the least effective um, in relation to controlling lots of the hazards. So an example of PPE is, if we go back to the earlier situation of workers using hazardous chemicals, they might do so only while wearing suitable gloves, goggles and respiratory masks. If the previous range of controls were hard controls, then these are soft controls. When I say soft, I don't mean they're ineffective, but they do control hazards in a very different way. Rather than having an effect on the hazard itself, you're trying to change the behaviour of people around the hazard. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the hierarchy of controls, I've put a link in the show notes. But the thing that's obvious when you look at how this is laid out is that there's a very clear hierarchy of controls when it comes to their effectiveness. When we look at the data, we see that one type of control is more commonly used than others. And that begs the question, is the most common type of control we see the most effective type? When we look at the serious accident data, we find that the vast majority of controls put in place after serious accidents are administrative controls, some of the least effective controls 
available. For the period of this review, administrative controls were the reported response in 62% of the causes of serious accidents. So a hazard that had the demonstrated ability to put someone in hospital was met with a control that essentially told them not to do it again. And this is part of the paperwork problem that we'll come back to later. Here's Stephen Smite again, who you heard from at the start of this episode, talking about the high percentage of administrative controls. I was really blown away by the amount of um, the percentage of administrative controls, particularly for serious accidents, high potential incidents, because either one of those two clearly could have led to something, a fatality or, or something worse. To me, to be perfectly honest, um, I see them administrative controls put in place because they want to get back on production. So let's unpack this finding regarding administrative controls. One reason admin controls may be used is because they're easy to implement. Yeah, unfortunately, administrative controls are generally easy to come up with and easy to implement. That's the voice of Rob Jackson. He's the vice president of supply for South 32. Rob gave an example of one of the issues with administrative controls. And the one I often talk to is exclusion zones around mobile equipment. Easy to say, yeah, we're going to have an exclusion zone. Easy to implement. Theoretically, it should work exactly the same as having hard barriers in place. We all know it doesn't because there's that human aspect as opposed to completely segregating mobile equipment, which in some instances is impossible, but if it is, it becomes a lot more difficult, which is why we tend to go towards administrative-type controls. So sometimes administrative controls may be good theoretically, but they can be problematic in practice. I'm Matt O'Neill, the Chief Operating Officer for Glencore's base metals business here in Queensland. You heard from Matt in the last episode when he spoke about people needing to understand the why in training. I asked him if it surprised him to learn the percentage of administrative controls put in place after incidents. Yeah, it does. It really does. The, the number of administrative controls that come out of, you know, pretty significant incident investigations is, I think, always surprising. It does come back sometimes. Let's retrain someone or adjust the procedure or, you know, all the things that, that probably weren't likely to have changed the outcome anyway. I asked Matt why he thinks this is. I do think part of the driver as to why people jump to administrative controls is to get the documentation in place. So there's a, there's a lot of documentation required and, and there's good reasons for a lot of it as well, but we've certainly become really document dependent within the industry. So has someone completed a, you know, a safe work assessment before they start? Have they done their JSA? All of the things that we ask for, there is a lot of paperwork that we're using and to a degree, some of that I think is actually you know, it's for, for covering people to say, yeah, I did think about that if and when the event happens. But at the end of the day, is it really making any difference to protect that person doing the activity? And I think, to be honest, some of it's actually not. I think it's more just uh, to make sure that we can prove if something does happen that we thought about these things beforehand. So now I want to bring someone else into the conversation. I'm Bobby Foote, and I'm the Head of Health, Safety and Environment at BHP Mitsubishi Alliance. Now, we've heard from Bobby many times already in the podcast. She's highly respected in the industry, and she started her career as a health specialist at an underground metalliferous mine. And when I spoke to her about administrative controls, she made some really insightful comments. So let's spend some time with her now to go over these. And we'll start with the view that's often put forward, that hard controls cost money. Here's Bobby talking about why this view may be incorrect. I think people choose soft controls over hard controls because of um, sometimes because of financial constraints. Um, they're trying to solve within what they have. Sometimes they feel it, it takes too much time to go and design and, and put in place an, a new hard control. Um, I think that 
is actually a, a bit of a false economy. The time to, to maintain that administrative control over a long time will often add up to a lot more than the time taken to put the, the hard control in place in the first place. So it's sometimes easy to calculate the cost of an engineering control or another hard control, but it's much harder to calculate all the time people spend managing administrative controls. This can be a hidden cost. So there are situations where you will still need to use administrative controls or you'll need to use them in conjunction with hard controls. And if you're going to do that, we've really got to make sure that we verify that those controls are working. So that might be inspections. It might be if we're looking at things like training, it might be retraining people, maintaining procedures, making sure they're up to date, making sure that, that we're making it possible for people to follow those procedures. If you add all of that up, and add up all the cost associated with it, you might find that it's cheaper to put the hard controls in place. Now, importantly here, we're not saying that you need to remove all the administrative controls or that it's even possible to do so. I think one of the things to bear in mind is that there will still be paperwork required, even with the hard controls. So you can put in place a new um, process that removes people from doing live work, for example, and you'll find it's written up in a procedure about how to do it and how to use that new equipment and so forth as well. But I think it is worth us having a look at which controls are we relying on and then really being honest with ourselves when we're testing the effectiveness of those controls. To me, that's one of the really important takeaways from this discussion. The industry needs to ask itself how effective administrative controls really are. Let's bring Peter Newman into the conversation here. He's the Chief Inspector of Coal Mines in Queensland, and I asked him if the use of administrative controls is part of a larger issue. Is it part of the paperwork problem? The high number of administrative controls in terms of the analysis is not a surprise to me, unfortunately. It really goes to the issue of how the industry is currently managing health and safety through their safety management plan, because it's become very much a documented process. And the amount of documentation that there is an expectation for people either have access to or have a knowledge of and a current knowledge of has almost got out of control for the industry. And Peter has a view of what happens when something goes wrong. The easy thing to do is, well, let's get a group of people together and go through the procedure. When the people are going through the procedure, they're looking for failures of the procedure rather than the failings in the activity and the controls that were required. Now, this approach would naturally lead to more administrative controls to fix the procedure, rather than looking at why the incident occurred and what other more effective controls could be implemented to prevent it reoccurring. And we'll come back to this whole discussion on paperwork and procedures later in the episode. But before we do, I want to spend some time talking about the serious accidents, because while they may not necessarily result in a fatality, they can have a profound effect on someone's life. Here's Russell Wilson from Barl, who you heard from in the last episode, and he's going to share a personal story about a serious accident. In my 30 years, I haven't been directly involved in a fatality, thank God, but I have been um, closely involved in one particularly serious incident that will stay with me forever. It was in a, in a small contracting operation we had a group of four people operating in a, in a remote area. They were just producing some road base. And a guy took a shortcut. He had forgotten to grease a particular conveyor and decided that he would do that after it started, which is completely different to the program that they had. 
So um, long story short, he got his arm wrapped around the tail drum of a conveyor and then had to be medevaced out. His life was changed forever. I'll always remember the conversations with his family. I don't want to do it again. Now, anyone who's been close to a serious accident knows the devastating effect they can have, because they often resemble the one that Russell just told us about. They can have an enormous impact on people's lives. So now, I want to spend some time going through what's causing serious accidents like this. In the review, we found there were two primary causes of serious accidents, and we're going to talk about them now. So starting with the first of them, 36% of serious accidents were caused because a hazard hadn't been identified. Now, I want to bring Mark Stone back into the conversation. Mark is the CEO of Resources, Safety and Health Queensland, which is the regulator, and you heard from him briefly in our last episode. I asked him about such a high percentage of serious accidents happening because of a failure to identify the hazard. It blew me away, actually, to see failing to identify the hazard, you know, the basic starting point. It just really surprised me. My background is oil and gas, and it has depending on the activity, a series of defined hazards. You know, a lot of them are around process safety. So it's pressure containment, could be fluid type. Others which are common to the mining industry, falling from heights. I think I was really surprised to find that the risk management process really was, was flawed or, or was, was doomed in some way that how can you do anything to control risk if you're fundamentally missing the hazard? There are a number of possible reasons why something like this could happen. Is it training? or an induction piece where the worker is simply new to the sector or new to the operation, new to the activity. We often find that it's experienced workers who are suffering serious accident. Is it really just uh, paying lip service to a risk management process? Is it, is it really just moving paper around? So that's the first major cause of serious accidents, a hazard not being identified. Now let's talk about the other big cause ineffective controls. 45% of serious accidents were caused because controls were ineffective. Now, if you think back to our last episode on the causes of fatalities, this finding shouldn't be a surprise. One of the big findings from fatalities was that ineffective controls were involved in the majority of incidents. And here we see it again in serious accidents. I asked Matt O'Neill from Glencore about his thoughts on 45% of the serious accidents occurring because of a failure to effectively control a hazard. Yeah, the way that we saw or I saw the data in the report was consistent with what we see when we have our serious incident investigations come through is that the number of controls that failed, and, and not necessarily big ones, but small ones that have failed that led up to that event, is, is generally surprising. And, and also you look at that and think that those are things that we could easily prevent. And if one of those had not been present, then the outcome would have been different. And again, we see the parallel with respect to fatalities. If some of the controls have been effective, then the fatality may have been avoided. Now, in the next episode, when we talk about drift into failure, you'll see that these sort of controls can get eroded over time and people can drift towards complacency and a higher level of risk acceptance. But in the meantime, serious accidents are typically caused by a failure to identify a hazard or a failure to effectively control it. These two causes account for over 80% of the serious accidents reported. And the bad news is 
the rate of serious accidents occurring is rising. In other words, the number of serious accidents per million hours worked is going up. And this means that the likelihood of a worker ending up in hospital from a serious injury has been increasing every year. So to summarise, the serious accident data shows the rate of serious accidents occurring is rising. These accidents are the result of the industry failing to identify hazards, and where hazards are successfully identified, they're not always effectively controlled. And we're also seeing that in the majority of cases following a serious accident, administrative controls are put in place, which is really just adding more procedures and paperwork. And as you heard earlier, most people I spoke to didn't find it surprising that a high percentage of administrative controls were being put in place, but they did find it confronting. And the reason I think it's not surprising is because the industry has a huge focus on procedures and paperwork. Here's Peter Newman again. I asked an EIZ controller at one site I was at recently, for your 12-hour shift, how many hours do you spend on the paperwork that's on your desk in in the crib room. He looked at me and I said, tell me, is it one hour, is it two hours, is it five hours? And eventually, with his managers around him, admitted it was somewhere around two hours. So for a frontline supervisor to be spending two hours a day not out there supervising the job, that's a big impost. And what does Peter believe is driving this paperwork? Obviously, legislation in itself is driving that level of paperwork. The legislation calls for an effective health and safety management plan. That system, in any quality system, requires control of those documents, requires any activity that's being continually done to be documented. So you'll always need some level of documentation to comply with the legislation. Here's Peter's view on the other reason that drives paperwork. And... That is associated with protecting those statutory officials and managers and SSEs and uh, and ultimately the board. Now here's the key point. The fact of the matter is that that system needs to be effective to do the job safely rather than being effective in protecting the organisation. So the paperwork should be there to protect those doing the actual work. But for the rest of this episode we'll talk about why this is hard to achieve in practice. Not only is it difficult to read, remember and have access to all the procedures when you need them, but it's also difficult to keep them up to date. And then there's the whole question of just how effective people are at following procedures. So let's go to Rob Jackson again from South 32, talking about some of these practical challenges. Yeah, I believe that one of the challenges the industry will always have, how do you document procedures and risk management? And I have worked at operations before that have had thousands upon thousands of of procedures. And that creates a couple of problems. One, it's not easy for someone who is doing some work to actually identify, well, where's a procedure that I've got to get hold of to help me do this safely? And often they're pages and pages long, 20, 30 pages. So that's not that helpful either. And then finally, just maintaining those procedures is a task in itself. It's almost an industry in itself. So how do you manage this? It has to be concise, it has to be simple, it has to be easily maintained, and by that I mean improved as well. I think documentation that works is documentation that's owned by the people who are doing the work. So if they're doing the work and they can make improvements to that documentation, it needs to be easy to do and then it, you know, it flows straight through. 
So I think there is a place um, for documentation. We have tried to simplify as much as we can. So documentation has to be concise and it has to be maintained and improved. But doing this in practice poses some challenges. Here's Matt O'Neill again. So some of those work management systems that we use have been changed over times as a result of investigations where they've been complicated. So we've added parts to it and it's sort of evolved to a point that when you stand back now and look at the document as a whole, you go, actually, that doesn't make sense as one document. Restarting that and saying, well, how would you actually do the tasks and important activity? So definitely, you know, how we think things are being done is often not the way they're being done when the person's doing the activity. And that's something we really need to address. So how do you avoid losing control of your documents? So we've gone back to instead of evolving a document and adding a clause here where we've had an incident after a certain number of changes, it's okay, let's stop, go back a step and rewrite the document. Uh, and then the other one is also to you know clearly have people in the room that do the task, pulling someone in who's actually doing the task today and say, well, that's not how we really do it anymore. We do it like this. So it's a real challenge to avoid ending up with thousands of procedures or procedures that don't make sense. Then there's the challenge of getting people to actually follow them. Here's Peter Wilkinson from Noetic, who you heard from in the last episode. A question that's often raised is, why don't people follow procedures? They've been written for their benefit. If only people would just do what we expect them to do. Well, it's an understandable perspective, if one that's doomed to failure. And why is this doomed to failure? The reason for this, well, there are a number of reasons, actually, but one is the procedures are rarely written from the perspective of the person doing the task. Have they been involved in working out what's the best way to do this? Another aspect was the procedure was written some time ago. This person, who's now operating the procedure, had never been given the context and background as to why this needed to be done in this particular way. A third issue is unnecessary complexity in procedures. There are too many words written by somebody who is no doubt skilled at the job but not skilled in writing something down. Does it even need to be in writing as a procedure? What about pictures, illustrations? Now, in the last episode, Peter mentioned that it was really important to not only tell people how things were done in a procedure, but also why things were done in a certain way. And here he adds another key point. There may be a a range of ways of solving a particular problem. If there's multiple ways of doing it, we need to indicate what the preferred way is and also identify, if we don't do that, what the consequences of that are so that people can decide how best to do this particular task because we can't write a procedure for everything, although people sometimes seem to want to try. So some people believe that procedures can be written for every task and that people should just follow them. But as Peter points out, ensuring procedures and paperwork is actually put together in a way that it can be used is very difficult. And we'll come back to this many times in later episodes. But before we leave this topic, and at the risk of opening a whole Pandora's box on the subject of procedures, I want to hear from one more guest. Hey, my name is uh, Sidney Decker. I work as a professor at Griffith University, uh, where I run the Safety Science Innovation Lab. And I'm also a professor at Delft University in the Netherlands of uh, Aviation Safety. So hold tight for a very direct assessment on the wisdom of relying on procedures to manage risk. 
So if you're a manager, it's lovely to live the dream that if people follow procedures, things will go well because these procedures were thought out correctly and, and, and by smart people and so imposed on, on people who do the work. They may even have been consulted in the design of these procedures. And so um, if things go well, it's because people were following procedures. There's a lovely study by Johnson in 2017 who uh, investigated the number of procedures, rules, guidelines that a uh, anesthetist in the U.S. needs to follow um, while practicing. They found some 4 million documents of procedures and guidelines and, and practice protocols. 4 million documents. So then they started counting. And they decided, okay, we need to find out how long it takes for anesthetists to take these all of these rules um, on board. They ended up with a staggering number. Just reading it all takes 2,000 years. 2,000 years of reading all the rules, protocols, and guidelines applicable to providing anesthesia in an operating theater in the U.S. today, right? It is humanly impossible, absolutely, utterly impossible. I think if, if you're a mining exec, one of the questions that would be interesting to ask is, okay, well, let's add it all up. Let's find out all the rules that you're expecting people to follow every day. And why not do that? Why not identify and add up all the rules and procedures and paperwork that people on your site are required to know about, to be familiar with, to be able to retrieve and use when necessary, to be able to implement and implement error-free? And when you have all these rules identified and added up, ask yourself if you really believe that your people can retain all this information and that it's making your site a safer site in a practical sense. As I said, we'll return to procedures and paperwork in later episodes. But for now, it's time to ask yourself an honest question. Do you really think all this paperwork is making people safer? Because what we see in the data is that ineffective controls are the leading cause of serious accidents. And I don't think we should be surprised by this, because we also know from the data that when accidents are happening, the industry is responding in the majority of cases with administrative controls, some of the least effective controls available. It just makes sense that if you're applying some of the least effective controls available, then you'll have ineffective controls causing accidents. Putting more effective controls, more hard controls in place, could be a big opportunity for the industry to reduce the number of accidents. I think one of the most important things the industry can do now is to be honest about the paperwork problem. On the next episode, we'll tackle the controversial world of incident reporting. And you'll hear why everything you know about reporting is wrong. In the meantime, here's a final thought from Mark Stone from The Regulator. I hear stories of frontline supervisors being starved of time to supervise the workers because they've got to go off for you know 20 30 40 percent of their time to fill in um, spreadsheets to fill in reports who's asking for this i'm not the regulator's not so so what is this system that's been created is it um some kind of risk deflection activity i i, I would say from a regulator's perspective anything that takes time away from the role of a frontline supervisor if people have got to work through mountains of paper, I would be deeply concerned as a, as a senior leader in a company. I would want to know what that time breakdown is and who thinks this stuff is important. And if the answer that they're getting is that the regulator wants it, I'd say, um, great, give me a call. Let's have a chat. You've been listening to Rethinking Safety, 
a show where the Queensland mining industry charts out the journey to a safer future. Our objective for this podcast is to reinvigorate the conversation about safety in mining. This podcast was written and produced by Brady Hayward in partnership with Waveland Creative. Archival audio provided by the Australian Broadcasting Corporation Library Sales and additional audio by Colin Tyrus. I'm Sean Brady and I'll speak to you on our next episode. <laughs>